just getting used to waking up on Sunday morning and being at church. We usually have long breakfasts and late lunches and then show up around three o'clock. It's while you're all taking your nap, I guess. Um, but um, good morning. It's it's good to be back together again as, as two churches this morning. I thoroughly enjoyed our time last Sunday, enjoyed the time in the Word, enjoyed all the good conversations that I had related to uh, John 13 and 14 following the service. And so I want to uh, jump back in there again um, and ask you to turn in your Bibles to John uh, chapter 13, and we'll look at John 13 and 14 again um, this morning. And I will again say there are many deep truths in this passage that we will not mine out, um, partly due to my lack of knowledge and partly due to our lack of time. Um, but I think it'll be good to jump back in again into John 13:31 to uh, 14:31. So let me just sort of recap. We tried to set the context for these verses last week, and I assume that not everyone was uh, was here. I know some of you were not, and so I just want to briefly remind you of what the surrounding chapters of the Gospel of John were talking about and where we're at um, in this. Um, in this narrative. So John tells us in chapter 20, he tells us that um, he has written these things down in the gospel. He's written the signs and the statements of Jesus that are found here so that we, his readers, might believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Savior, he is the Messiah, and that by believing that, we would find life through his name. So throughout John's gospel then, not just there, but throughout the whole gospel, we find all these different various points where Jesus says or does something that causes the crowds to either reject him and choose death or to believe in him and choose life. And so John is setting this up. This is who Jesus is. You have a choice before you. Do you choose to believe and find life or do you choose to reject him and find death? And in the context of John 13 and 14, most recently, the, 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 one of the greatest miracles that he did, accepting his own resurrection, was to raise Lazarus from the dead. And this final sign before his own death and resurrection serves to dramatically enhance the division between these two crowds. Lazarus's death is just sort of the, the culmination of both those who want to crown Jesus as king, and also those who want to kill him as one who blasphemes. And so there's this great division now that that has happened in the the gospel of John. And it's in light of this division between what the crowds think about who Jesus is that he says in chapter 12 that his hour of glorification has come. We said by that glorification, it means it's time for him to be delivered up to be crucified for the sins of the world, but also to be raised in victory over death and then ascended to the right hand of the Father where he now sits. Amazing to think that. He now sits awaiting the moment of final glory, his final glorification for all eternity and our glorification for those who believe in him for all eternity. So, We see in John 13 that having washed the disciples' feet and having dismissed Judas into the night, Jesus begins to teach his disciples specifically. And he's specifically talking about how they're going to continue to walk with him after he leaves this world. What will that look like? 
Last week we tried to understand a little bit uh, about just how distressing it was for the disciples that, to think that Jesus is going to be leaving them and they would no longer be able to follow him. Um, an image came into my mind of this yesterday while I was running, and not surprisingly it's from The Lord of the Rings. Um, spoiler alert if you haven't seen it or read the books. But um, if you remember in those movies, and if you don't, then that's your homework, I guess, um, is to watch them. But the, the Fellowship of the Ring had gathered together for this this huge quest, and they had traveled together for some time. And, and the obvious leader is Gandalf. And Gandalf is walking, and he knows the way, and he knows everywhere to go, and he solves all the, the different problems that they face. And you remember they, they come to the caves of Moria, which is a very dangerous place, and it gets more and more dangerous as they go through. And finally, near the end, when they're just about out, do you remember what happens? Gandalf falls in this pit, and they all have to go out by themselves without their leader. And if you remember in the movies, they capture that despair so well of, of this, the fellowship and just how heartbroken they are, and they don't know what to do, and they're trying to come to grips with the fact that their leader is gone and apparently he's never going to return and he's never going to help them. If you have that image, that's what it's like in part, probably not fully, for the disciples to lose Jesus in this moment, for him to go away. It's the loss of their best friend. It's the loss of their their teacher. It's the loss of this man that they had watched do countless miracles, the man that they had looked to as their leader. How many meals had the disciples eaten with Jesus? How many miles had they walked with Jesus and been with Jesus? How much had they left to be with Jesus? What sacrifices had they made for this journey? This is the man that they looked up to more than anyone else, and he's also their best friend. And now he says, I'm leaving. And like all these members of the, the Fellowship of the Ring, they're, they're confused, they're heartbroken, they might be a little bit angry, and they just don't know what to do next. They're confused and they're distressed. And while we haven't experienced that kind of physical closeness to Jesus and then the separation, we can also sometimes wonder, how do we live in the absence of Jesus' physical presence? What does it look like for me to follow him when I can't just walk down the road behind him? What does it mean to love a God that we can't see and to know the love of Jesus when we've never talked to him face to face? And the answer that we began to uncover last week is that we walk by faith, that that's what this journey is. It's a walk of faith. We said last week that that's the key command. It's not surprising giving John's emphasis on believing throughout the book. It's a call to trust God. It's a call to trust Jesus. And so I would reemphasize our big idea from last week. It's the same because it's the same passage. Uh, and this is how we stated it. As we wait for the return of Jesus, as we wait for the return of Jesus. So as we're in this in-between time when he is not physically present with us, as we wait for the return of Jesus, we trust his plan and power. Trust. We believe. We have faith. As we wait for his return, we trust his plan and we trust his power. And so as we continue to think about that and continue to think about uh, what Jesus says about this walk of faith, this belief, this trust, uh, we're asking what does that trust look like? And so I want to again read this larger passage 
Um, and again, I'll give you a few notes to engage with the passage because it's a little bit longer. So let's build a little bit, some things to note. So as we read, you're going to notice at the beginning that he talks about loving one another, but it's a command that he's going to have to come back to because the thought that Jesus gives at the beginning is that he's leaving, and that's what the disciples are consumed with. Jesus, what you're leaving, we need to talk about this before we talk about loving one another. And so that's then the structure of the passage. It's those four statements or questions from the four different disciples. That forms the structure. So again, take note of what the disciples say and how Jesus then responds to them with promises and assurances and even some mild rebuke. Um, so look at the statements of the disciple that form the, the, the disciples that form the structure. Uh, next, look for that main command to believe and then how that command is supported by the many promises that Jesus gives. So Jesus doesn't just say believe and leave it at that. He says believe and then he gives them all these promises and assurances and things that they can trust and believe about what he's going to do and who he is. And then just take note that Jesus does not teach in a linear way, but he is weaving a, a tapestry of truth in this teaching and actually throughout the whole discourse. And we might even say in all his teaching, he, he doesn't have, Jesus doesn't have simple outlines. Paul doesn't have simple outlines, but he's more of an outline kind of guy. But, but Jesus is teaching more in this sort of tapestry where he weaves thoughts in and out. Another way you might think about it is um, if, if, you, if Jesus' teaching is a shirt, it's, it's not stripes, it's plaid. So stripes, you see clear demarcations of what each color is and what each thought is. But a plaid, I wore my plaid shirt on purpose. Uh, it's different colors that are woven together and they, they're coming in and out and they're building on each other and they're going different ways. That's how Jesus often teaches. We want to see it real clear. Okay, Jesus, just tell me exactly what you mean, line by line, give me a list. You know, the magazines that we love are, here's the ten things you need to know. Here's the five clothes you need to wear for the summer or something like that. And that's what, that's how we think. But Jesus is just weaving things and he's building on things and he's coming back to things later. And that's why sometimes it's hard for us to understand this. But just notice that it's not line by line necessarily, but it's more of this tapestry. So with those things in mind, the, the statements of the disciples, the command to believe how Jesus is teaching, um, let's read again John 13, beginning in verse 31. When he that is Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and glorify Him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek Me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? 
Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do. Because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in, the Father, in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the fathers who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. You heard me say, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise. Let us go from here. 
Let's pray once more. Father, we thank you for this word preserved for us. Help us to understand it, Lord. By your spirit, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've summarized this as as we wait for the return of Jesus, we trust his plan and his power. What do we trust about him and what do we trust about his plan? Well, we trust all of these promises that Jesus gives. And so we said last week that we learned from Peter's question and Jesus' response that we are to trust God's timing and work. We trust God's timing and work. And from Thomas and Philip, we learned that, that and, and the way that Jesus responds, we learned that Jesus is enough and relationship is the goal. I won't rehash those points because we did that last week. So we won't go through them. But I want to talk a little bit more about Philip's, question, Philip's statement and Jesus' response. Uh, you'll notice that Philip doesn't ask a question. Rather, he makes a request. His request there is, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And in fact, Jesus is the one who asks the questions after that. Um, Philip's request is to see the Father, and that request seems to be rooted in a misunderstanding, at least in part of who Jesus is, and more so about how God has been working in and through Jesus during his ministry. Philip seems to think that seeing the Father will be some, in some way the final thing that the disciples need to help them continue on in Jesus' absence. He seems to say, if we see the Father, it is enough. That, that's all we need. We just need a little bit more, and we just need to see the Father. But this misunderstanding is, is very dangerous, because if it's dangerous for Philip, but it's dangerous for us, because if we misunderstand as disciples of Jesus, how the Father has worked in and through Christ, then we won't understand how he works in and through us as his followers because they are in many ways one and the same. They're at least parallel. So what Philip teaches us is to trust the way the Father and Son work. So we've had Peter and we had um, Thomas and Philip. So now you might just write Philip, and Philip shows us trust the way the Father and son work. I'm thinking especially of how they work to do the work of, of the kingdom, to do the work of ministry, to do the work of the gospel. So trust the way that the father and the son work. So I want to think about two things. First, the way that the father has worked in the son, and then secondly, the way that Jesus works through his disciples. So let's think about the way that the father works through the son the way the Father works to the Son. The question that Jesus asks in response, the questions that he asks are not um, meant to be answered by Philip. This is where I think there's kind of a mild rebuke if you read those questions. Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Jesus seems to be a little bit exasperated by this whole thing. Don't you understand how the Father has been working in and through me? These questions show and reveal how confused Philip and others are about what's been going on for the past three years in Jesus' ministry. And if we think that we never would have made that request, Lord, show us the Father, then we misunderstand the mystery of what God is doing in Christ because it was a mystery. But it's something that we need to strive to understand. What Jesus says 
moves beyond the realm of what we can fully comprehend. But what he's saying, if I had to state it in a few statements, he's saying, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father is in me. And I am in the Father. It's a both and. The Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Is that possible? It is. But Jesus, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father is in me. I am in the Father. And all of this, verse 11 says, is what we're supposed to believe. Believe this. We're to believe that Jesus is the full revelation of the Father that's spoken of in John. But not in in a visible sense, because that wouldn't make sense if we're talking about Jesus leaving and being the full revelation of the Father. It's not about seeing Jesus and therefore seeing the Father with our physical eyes. Because what's real and true and of deep significance really most often has little to do with the things that we see with our eyes. We get caught up with what we can physically see. But rather the Father is actually revealed through the words and the works of Jesus. That's why John has written all of this. He doesn't draw a picture of Jesus. He paints a picture of Jesus' life through the words and the actions that Jesus did. These allow us to see the Father. Remember, who is it that became flesh and dwelt among us so that we could see the Father's glory? It's the Word. The Word became flesh. Jesus is a revelation of the truth about the Father. He's the way, the truth, and the life. John seems to have no time for those of us who would say, you know, if I could just see Jesus, then I would believe. Have you ever thought that or said that or heard someone say it? John has no time for that because to actually see Jesus in the flesh doesn't reveal anything unique that he hasn't already shown us in his gospel. I think John would say, if we said, if I could just see Jesus, then I would believe. He'd say, I just showed you him through his words and through his works. You don't need to physically see him. You have seen him. I think that's why John records the story of Thomas. He's the only one that records that story. And you remember how that goes, that Thomas, after hearing about the resurrection, says, I won't believe unless I've seen. Driving home this this idea that we seem to think that we need to see physically Jesus. But Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Because that's what we have to do. We are not, we, we will not see him until we see him in the end. And so this idea is that, that we do not believe with our, with our eyes, but rather belief flows from our ears and our, and our hearts, even if our eyes never see anything. If that's all confusing, maybe this will summarize it. It's what someone else said. Okay. <laughs> this in a commentary. The phrase seen is believing is wholly inappropriate when it comes to God. For if a person believes in the words of Jesus, they will see the Father. So instead of seeing is believing, we should say hearing and believing is seeing. I don't pretend that's easy to understand, but it maybe is a little bit clearer. So how has God worked through Jesus? That's what we're trying to figure out here. It's this idea that the Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father, and through the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit, they work together to speak and to do these amazing things all the way to the point of death on the cross. How does God work? He works in this union of the Father and the Son through the power of the Spirit to speak and to do all that He was called 
to do. This is what we're called to believe. You, you and I are called to believe that the Father and the Son have worked together to accomplish salvation on our behalf and show their power in the world. That the Son reveals the Father to us and that the Father and the Son are mutually in one another working together. Great mystery. But that's what we're called to believe. And the reason that's so vital to understand, at least in part, at least to, to, to wrestle with it, is because that moves then into the way that Jesus is going to work through his disciples. If we don't understand that there's this mutual indwelling of the Father and the Son, and that to see the Father is to see the Son, then we won't understand the way that Jesus is going to work through us as his followers. So let's think about that, the way Jesus works through his disciples. I, I want to walk through verses... Um, basically 12 through through 21. So keep your eyes in the text here. You look at verse 12. It says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. So we're going to work as Jesus has, and he says, and actually in a greater way. And before we ask what that means, notice the reason that he says we're going to work in a greater way. He says, You will do greater works than these, why? Because I am going to the Father. So there's this sense in which because Jesus is returning to the Father, we can now do the works that God has called us to do. The departure of Jesus is necessary for us to do the works of God. That's a partial truth. We're going to see more. He's building on this. Verse 13 then talks about asking of the Father so that we may do anything that we ask. God will do anything that we ask of him as long as it's for his glory and for the sake of his name. He will do it. And this is not something new. This is something that the disciples have witnessed in the life of Jesus. Most recently, when he raised Lazarus from the dead, you remember he pauses and he prays aloud. And why does he say he does it? He says in, in chapter 11, verses 41 through 42, Father, I thank you that you have heard me I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. But I also think Jesus is giving us a paradigm for how we do ministry. We ask the Father, and the Father does the work. Anything we ask in his name for his glory, he will do in and through us. And that's what Jesus models. So Jesus is calling us to walk with him and to ask for power from the Father to do his work for his glory, just as he had modeled throughout his ministry. Okay, keep going. Um, verse 15 through 17 takes us a step further because it says that we will obey the Father and do the works of Jesus because he's going to send the Holy Spirit to be with us forever. Verse 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, an advocate to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. Jesus says this isn't new to the disciples. He says at the end of verse 17, you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. So this is, is not new, but so, soon there's, there's going to be something unique about this, that he is actually going to not just be with them, he is going to be in them. And then in verse 18 I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. That's weird, because he just said, I'm leaving. 
So what's he talking about? I will come to you. I originally thought that this was about the second coming of Jesus. But having read and listened to some smarter people than me, I'm convinced now that Jesus says this because the Holy Spirit is his spirit. And so therefore, because his spirit and he are so closely related, when the spirit comes and dwells within us, it's as if Jesus himself is dwelling in us. Jesus will come. He says, I will live, and therefore I will live in you, and you will know my presence. So all of this, the working the works of God, asking for power from God, being given the power by the Spirit, all of this was tasted by the disciples when they worked on with Jesus and as they watched Jesus. But Jesus is speaking about a coming day. He's speaking about the day of Pentecost and beyond when the Spirit came in power and filled all of those and empowered them for this greater work that Jesus had given them. The greater work is the calling of all people to faith in Christ for salvation. And that day is marked by this unique moment of transition from the physical presence of Jesus abiding to when he ascends and now the Spirit is sent to live and to dwell within us. So Peter, in his sermon on the day of Pentecost, he summarizes, I think, what he learned from Jesus here. He tells the crowd that Jesus was raised, and then in Acts 2, he says, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. This is Jesus. Jesus is exalted, and Jesus has received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is now given the Spirit. Peter then says, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. In some mysterious way, Jesus is ascended. He's glorified. The Father gives to Jesus the Holy Spirit, and Jesus chooses in that moment to pour out the Spirit on all of his true children so that his Spirit will live and abide in them. This is the unique abiding power of the Spirit, and it's summarized in verse 20 of chapter 14 here in John In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. We're now brought into this relationship. The Father and the Son are in one another, but now we are in the Son, and the Son is in us. How does Jesus work through us? Jesus is in us, and we are in him through the indwelling of the Spirit, and we are therefore, like Jesus, enabled to obey him and to do the works that he calls us to do. We are called to live and to work in the same way that Jesus did in this world for the glory of God alone. I think this is what chapter 15 expands on. I am the vine. You are the branches. You have to abide in me, because apart from me, you can't do anything. I think that Paul picked up on this idea, and that's why he's always talking about our union with Christ, the fact that we are united to Christ by the Spirit, and therefore, he's always talking about the way you do this. We, are, we live in Christ. We are in Christ, and Christ is in us. And he enables us to do everything that we're called to do. He enables us to say no to sin. He enables us to proclaim the wonders of the gospel. He enables us to love one another. He enables us to endure suffering and even rejoice in it. All that we're called to do, because God's Spirit now dwells in us, because Christ is in us, and because we are in Christ, we can now do the work that God has called us to do. That's the way that Jesus did it. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, therefore I do the works. 
How do we walk with Jesus? Because Jesus is in us, and we are in Him by the power of the Spirit, and that's how we are called to walk. So, has Jesus left us alone? Has He left us as orphans to walk through life? No. Not even close to it. He has, in fact, left us so that He can dwell in us through the Spirit that the Father has given to Him that He has poured out on all His children. Jesus has to leave. He has to go so that He can send His Spirit to live and dwell in us forever. There's more in here about who the Spirit is revealed to be, um, but just an encouragement before we think about what Judas uh, asks We said last week that for Peter and Thomas, they were kind of hyperventilating at the thought of Jesus leaving. And so Jesus' words serve as like this deep breath. And there's a sense of that here. I'm leaving you, but I'm going to send the Spirit. But I think there's less of the feel of a a deep breath here and more of this, this call to courage. Jesus, in a sense, kind of grabs all the disciples figuratively by the shoulders and says, look in my eyes. I'm leaving, yes, but I will never leave you because I'm sending the Spirit. I'm leaving you so that I can always be with you in power until we're together for all eternity. I'm leaving because it's for your good. It's one of those moments where if you are a parent, you know where you say, I know you don't understand this right now, but it's for your good. It's going to help you. And then kids later on, and if you've had that experience of going away to college is what I felt like. And it's like, oh, I guess my parents did know what they were doing. Uh, And that's sort of, I think, what's happening here is the disciples, what are you doing, Jesus? This is not the way it's supposed to be. You're supposed to stay here. And you're supposed to keep this thing going. And he says, no, it's actually going to be a lot better if I leave so that I can send the Spirit. I invite you to contemplate this mystery. Christ in you, the hope of glory, and you in Christ, and the Spirit living and abiding in us. If you feel like you can't do what God has called you to do, if you can't fulfill, do he keeps talking about us doing the commands. He tells us to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the world. None of this is possible apart from the power of Jesus dwelling in us, and that's exactly what he has done. How did Jesus work? He was in the Father, and the Father was in Him by the power of the Spirit. How do we do what God has called us to do? Christ is in us. We are in Christ by the power of the Spirit. What a mystery. But what a wonder. What a thing to press into and know more and more. The final question then comes from the the fourth disciple here, and it's prompted by the fact that Jesus said He's going to manifest Himself to those who... um, who keep his commandments. You see that in verse 21. And Judas, not Iscariot, imagine you always had to make that clarification if you're Judas. Um, But Judas says, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Judas is concerned with the scope of the revelation of the kingdom of God. And so he asks this question in verse 22. And I think what Judas is, is helping us to to understand is that we need to trust the way that the kingdom is revealed. To trust the way that the kingdom is revealed. This could be, again, another trust of timing. 
and how God works, but we'll call it trust the way the kingdom is revealed. The assumption, as most of you probably know, of so many was that the kingdom would be worldwide and it would be clear to everyone. When the Messiah comes, he's going to set up this kingdom and everyone will know it and he's going to reign fully and finally over the whole world. Isaiah 40 verse 5 promises this when it says, And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So it's supposed to be this worldwide reign of Jesus, but now Jesus is saying that he's only going to reveal to himself to those who walked with him by faith and keep his commandments. How does that work? Judas cannot figure this out. It's supposed to be a lot bigger than that, Jesus. This sounds really small. I think part of what um, is going on here is Jesus talks about the kingdom as a mustard seed. you remember this? The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, the smallest of all seeds. We've got a song in our house that goes like that, sings it. Um, It starts small, but then what happens? It becomes one of the greatest and the biggest things in the garden. And I think Judas is missing that. The the kingdom starts small, Judas. It's going to start in this little tiny room, an upper room where you're all going to be hiding, about 120 of you. And then it's going to explode. And it's just going to get bigger and bigger and bigger until we're at this place now where we see Christianity spread throughout the world. It starts small, but it grows large. The manifestation of the kingdom looks humble at first, but its influence and scope increases slowly but surely. But I think also what's really emphasized here is that the kingdom, the kingdom's glory is revealed through intimate union with God. How is the glory revealed? It's revealed through intimate union with God himself, close union with God. The kingdom of God right now is not seen in castles. It's not seen in conquering armies. It's seen in followers of Jesus who have enthroned Christ as king. People who keep his commandments. People who know the love of God. We might even return to verses um, 35 and 30, or 34 and 35 of chapter 13 and remember that Jesus is going to expand on this, that the way that the world will know that you're my disciples is not because you know, we have some headquarters set up here in Jerusalem. The way everyone's going to know you're my disciples is that you have love for each other. What a strange kingdom. This is how we're going to spread our message, by loving each other. This is what the kingdom looks like. It looks like intimate relationship with God. It doesn't look like any other kingdom. I say to that, I would say, don't despise the, the call to keep the commandments of the Father by the power of the Spirit. Don't despise the call to love one another. This is the kingdom. This is God's kingdom here on earth. It's how God's power reigns and is made manifest in the world. It's revealed through our union with God as we love one another. So the kingdom of God's glory is revealed in the in intimate union with God. Another brief thought, the kingdom kingdom's glory is revealed through the scriptures. It's through the scriptures. I think that 25 and 26 are specifically speaking about the disciples. Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. There's a sense in which the Spirit does that for us, yes. But I think specifically that this is what's happening in John's Gospel is that by the power of the Spirit, he's remembering these things and writing them down for us. 
so that we can see and understand them. The indwelling Spirit allowed the Gospel writers to give us this record of Jesus' words and actions so that we can know him and we can know how to live as people of his kingdom. But all of this, I think, the, the kingdom of glory is in fact revealed through the way of the cross. And that's the uniqueness that really the disciples and we struggle to get. That God's kingdom and the glory of his kingdom is revealed through this, the way of, of death and the way of crucifixion. The hardest part of the kingdom's glory for the disciples to understand was that Jesus was going to build his kingdom by dying and rising again and ascending and sending the Spirit. How is Jesus going to reign as a king by dying? Wouldn't death be the, the greatest defeat? Just like they think they don't understand why he has to go, they don't understand why he has to die. Wouldn't this show, if he dies, that he really has no power? And yet this was always his plan. It's never a mistake. I love how this ends in verses 30 and 31. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. Here's another king, the king of this world. But Jesus says, he has no claim on me. Just a simple statement. He has no claim on me, no power over me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. We see in verses 30 and 31 that someone could look at the cross and think that Satan had finally won, that he finally took control of this thing, but he didn't, of course. Jesus and the Father continued to work together to the very end, and Jesus did exactly what the Father commanded him to do. He willingly went to the cross and took your sins and took my sins upon himself to pay the penalty for the eternal death that we deserve so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be made part of his kingdom. But also so that we could actually walk that same path. So that we could realize that the kingdom is not made up of conquering and reigning over some earthly kingdom, but it's in fact made up of suffering and laying down our lives for others that the path to glory always leads through the cross. But we're thankful that Jesus never asks us to go somewhere that he hasn't gone. He never says, go there. He says, follow me. Follow me down the path that I've gone because you see that this is the way we go and this is the path that leads to glory. This is why we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And this is why we... All do it as followers of Jesus. This is the meal of God's kingdom. It celebrates what seemed to be the defeat of the Son of God, but actually what served instead to exalt him and enthrone him as the, the king of life for everyone who would believe in his name. The death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus have made it possible for us to be forgiven for us to be filled with the Spirit, for us to be united to Christ, for us to actually obey God's commands, and for us to love one another. There's deep pictures in this. It's not just the forgiveness that we have personally, but it's the forgiveness that we have as the people of God. That's why we take it together in this group together to say that we love one another and it's only by the Spirit. This is what unites us it's what Jesus has done on our behalf. 
And because of what Christ has done one day, we will feast with Jesus for all eternity. We will live in the Father's house. We will be a part of his kingdom and we will know eternal peace for all. But until then, the Spirit lives in us and the peace of Jesus fills us because of what he has done through his death and through his resurrection. And so, if you are a part of God's kingdom through faith in Jesus, if you have repented of your sins and you have trusted that it's only through the work of Jesus on your behalf that you can be forgiven, that you can be made right with the Father, then we would invite you to join us in taking the Lord's Supper as we remember what he has done to make our salvation and our union with him possible. This is a a foretaste of the coming kingdom that Jesus has left for us to remember what is at the core of who we are and what he has done through his death and his resurrection. He has accomplished our salvation. I want to invite us into just a a moment of silence to reflect on God's word, to reflect on the the meaning of the cross. Um, And in that moment of silence, I believe the musicians will come and have a chance to take the Lord's Supper. um, And then I will uh, pray for us. Um, And then, um, I know for Grace Fellowship, this is different for us, but there's two stations here. Um, You take the bread and and dip it uh, into the juice and... um, to remember Christ. And so let's take a moment of silence and then I want to I'll read some words from 1 Corinthians and pray for us. And then as the music is playing, feel free to, to come as you um, are ready. But the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we thank you for what Christ has done on our behalf, that he has suffered death, and paid the penalty for our sins. That his body was broken on our behalf as a substitute for us. That his blood was shed so that ours would not have to be so that you could provide forgiveness of our sins as we trust in him. And Lord, you have gone and you have sent your spirit so that we can walk in your ways. So Lord, as we take the bread and the cup this morning, may it just be a a real deep, tangible reminder of what you have done on our behalf. And Lord, that you are in us. And we are in you. And by the power of your Spirit, we can walk in a way that would honor you and glorify you. May we do that, Lord. Ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear these words of Jesus as we go. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Go in the peace of Jesus and the power of his spirit. Amen.